Lost in the Wilderness. <laughs> Let me try that again. Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And we have at long last come to chapter 32, uh, a chapter that I at least have been talking about uh, for, for eons now. Yes, we have traveled through the wilderness of priestly material to uh, make it back to narrative. Uh, yes, we have. And I have to say, I think, uh, I wouldn't say this is my favorite chapter of Exodus because it is quite disturbing, but it is the one that draws my attention with the most force. We've talked about this uh, a little bit before, but this is the closest that Judaism gets to a notion of the fall. Right. Uh, but for us, we don't have this sort of original sin thing when it comes to uh, the Garden of Eden. But there is a notion, it's actually one of the Midrashes uh, we've got in our sheet today, that says that in every sin, large or small, individual or collective, there is something of the sin of the golden calf. Mm, this I becomes like sort of echo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, there's not an atonement theory to go with it, though, really, right? There's not an atonement theory to go with it. Exactly. It's not, it's not that sense of original sin uh, like that, but it is something that we all carry with us, which is, you know, ultimately the idea that we are creating God in our own image versus uh, the reverse. Right. Okay. Well, I think we should plunge in because we have so much to talk about today. And, uh, dear listeners, you should know that the sheet of Midrash is four pages long. Um, so, uh, we'll try not to do a double header on, on this chapter, but yes, uh, let's, let's leap right into it. You know, right before we leap in with another totally off topic tangent, uh, you know, I just, I've been having a lot of empathy for the Egyptians this week because my children have managed to bring lice into my home. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've been there, man. I have been there. Um, that is a young child thing, which hopefully will never repeat again in your life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we will be talking about the Egyptians again, because in a certain way, they're going to come back into the narrative. Uh, should, I, should I start out? Should I please. jump in from this? This was my bar mitzvah reading, by the way. I can still sort of remember the chanting of the Torah here. Yeah. Ooh, you want to chant any part of this, please feel free. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to let you do that. Uh, chant it? Okay, and the people saw that Moses lagged in coming down from the mountain. How's That's that? That's pretty good. That's yeah, pretty good. sure. Um, and the people assembled against Aaron and said to him, Rise up, make us gods that will go before us. For this man, Moses, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So, so it's not unreasonable. Mountain. Yeah. He's been on the mountain 40 days, right? Yeah, and you, you got to think that when people in the ancient world went off into the middle of the wilderness for 40 days, usually they're not coming back. Yeah, something ate him is what they're thinking. Right, something ate him or he just decided to leave. Ooh, yeah. Went off to find another people to rescue from some other country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, you know, we, we talk about people having a Jesus complex. Do Jews have a Moses complex? Are Jews, Jews have a Moses complex. Yeah. Uh, are there Jews who are running around trying to rescue uh, people from, from enslavement? Yeah, we just call them Jesus complex, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
God. All right. Anyway, going on. He was a good Jewish boy. Come on. You know? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, and Aaron said to them, take off the golden rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So the elder men don't wear rings, but their sons do? Uh, that seems to be the context. Rashi says that uh, rings and jewelry are things of children and women. Ah, interesting. Okay. Um, now, I, I don't know if there's a connection here, but remember that the people who don't fall into that category are inscripted soldiers. Who don't fall right. into the category of children and women? Yes, correct. Oh, okay. So you don't want to be wearing an earring in case an enemy tugs it off during battle. Oh, that hurts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. And all the people took off the golden rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he took them from their hand, and he fashioned it in a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now you've got the plural. I've got the singular. So you have Aaron saying it singularly, but for some reason, Robert Alter says they, they. What is it in the Hebrew? No, no, no. I've got the they. I've got this is your God, not gods. Oh, okay. Not these are your gods. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, well, read the next verse because then we've got this question. And Aaron saw, and he built an altar before it, and Aaron called out and said, Tomorrow is a festival to the Lord. Right? So one of the core questions here, I think, is a lot of times we think of this uh, idol as being some other god. It, it sure strikes me here, and this is the question of translation, that what we're dealing with is a physical representation of the Jewish god. Right. So because other people's gods, main gods, look like bulls, why wouldn't the Jews' main god look like a bull? Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, I mean, they haven't really been told not to have icons, have they? Uh, I'm the Lord of your God. Well, Moses has it because he's been up on the mountain, but have the people gotten that word yet? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. And and it's never quite clear because, uh, you know, of Rashi's notion that there's no beginning or there's no before or after, right? The, the sort of whole idea that things are oh, out right, of order right. here. It's not quite clear what people know or don't know at any given time. Okay. Um, so we have from the Midrash Tankuma from Rashi himself, uh, something of an apology for Aaron for all of this. Yeah. Right. I mean, to, to start with, this is not the Aaron we're used to seeing. Right. Um, is he even a priest yet? Cause also he doesn't have the information about how to, how to become a priest, how to be consecrated by having the blood and the oil and the stuff poured over him and sitting around in filth for seven days. So, uh, isn't he still just a brother of Aaron, of Moses at this point? So he's been functioning though, as at the very least, Moses's right hand man. Okay. Right. Moses' spokesperson. Uh, and so. Whether or not he is the consecrated priest, and that depends on how we uh, uh, do the timing of the narrative here. Uh, regardless, he's incredibly important in public leadership and has leadership of a priestly nature in the sense that he is the ritual leader, whereas Moses tends to be the political leader. Okay. So we have had that role for him. Um, 
So it's natural then that the, that he would be doing the thing. So why do you say this isn't the Aaron we're used to seeing? You know, I think the Aaron that we see throughout the rest of the Torah is an Aaron who's pretty consistently the good guy. Okay. Right. We don't see an Aaron who is a populist. We don't see an Aaron who pushes back against his brother inappropriately. We don't see anything but Aaron as the paradigm of the perfect priest, uh-huh. except this chapter. Okay. So dutiful Aaron, something has gone wrong with him in that he's accepting the people's uh, desire, request that he create a golden calf. Yes. Yes. Okay. So what we're going to get here is an apologetic. Uh, you know, how is it that Aaron could do this? And we're going to find some sort of excuse. Uh, yep. Okay. So what's the apologetic? What does Rashi say? So w- what did Aaron see? He saw his nephew Hur slain before him. That's what we're told. Uh, and Aaron sees his nephew and they come to him and they said, we will do to you what we have done to this man. So Aaron, right? So the, the first apologetic is, you know, if you're doing this under duress uh, and threat of your life, it's sort of different. Right. Okay. So they're threatening him. Yeah. Yeah. But even then they say that Aaron continued uh, uh, undermining, right? Aaron tried to busy them with tasks. He said to them, remove the golden earrings, which are in your ears. A most difficult thing for the women who saw all the miracles that God performed in Egypt at the Sea of Sinai would surely not participate. Uh, when the women did not do as the men demanded, the men removed their own jewelry. As it says, all the people unloaded the golden earrings, which were in their ears. Oh, interesting. I, yeah. I forgot that part of the Midrash, right? We've got the righteous women and the idolatrous men. Right, right. The women are getting it right. The men are not. And um, in some ways, this is a, Rashi's reading has to do with what comes later because uh, all of this will end in a kind of civil war or at least civil, civil disturbance. So what we have here is the rebel leaders demanding something of Aaron that he does not want to do. Um, and he tries to prevaricate and put it off and trick them. Uh, oh, interesting. I had never connected this to Korach's rebellion, but of course, yeah, this is the beginning of the populist uprising. Yeah. Um, okay, so Aaron is acting under duress, according to Rashi. That's the apology. Acting under duress, and he's delaying. Uh, right? right, he's getting them to collect their earrings. We're told also that he doesn't let anyone else help build the altar, so that he can take his time doing that. All this, hoping that Moses will come down before any of this begins. Yeah. So this is a tough forty days for Aaron, the hostage of his people. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, again, not necessarily in the text here. Right, right. But a good read, I think, because um, it does explain why he does act so differently. Yes. At this moment. Yes. Now, the other sort of historical uh, explanation for this, I think, is equally interesting. Uh, that if we go back in time to uh, 620 or so BCE, so 2,600 years ago, King Josiah had come to power, a new king. And what he did was he outlawed the ability of priests to do their work anywhere but in Jerusalem Uh at the temple. And what he ends up doing is putting all of the non-Jerusalemite priests out of business. Yeah. Uh, And the Jerusalem priests are said to be the descendants directly of Aaron. That's their shtick. And so one read of this whole story is that it is a polemic against Aaron, meaning it is a polemic against Jerusalem priests. 
Uh, really, this is dealing with the politics of, you know, 620 BCE more than anything else. Right, right. So the, the, like the priest of Bethel sneaks something in here. Exactly. In order exactly. to get revenge. Uh, yeah, that's possible, I guess. Um, nice that it made it into the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So continuing because we have another three and a half pages of Midrash to get through. Uh, uh, and they rose early on the next day, and they offered up burnt offerings and brought forward communion sacrifices. And the people came back from eating and drinking, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Quick, go down, for your people that I brought up from Egypt has acted ruinously. They have swerved quickly from the way that I charged them. They have made them a molten calf and bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The flip side is it does sound like a pretty great party. Well, that's the thing. Um, I think it's, I have a note here in Alter saying this is basically an orgy. Yep. Um, so, which actually, to me, that would not be a great party uh, just because I'm a prude. But I can, you know, a few, Daniel, I know, have a much more swinging lifestyle. <laughs> um, <laughs> but at any rate, um, this isn't just about worshiping a golden calf. And this is about the breakdown of social rules and decorum and all the things that might form this people into a people. Yeah. It's also, you know, one of the explanations we get here, it's one of the Midrashim uh, that we have on the sheet is that fundamentally, why is it that the people are behaving this way? It's because this is what Egyptian religion looked like. Uh huh. Right. So it's, it's less that they are, sort of people of little faith who are uh, um, departing so quickly and much more that they are continuing on with the normative religious tradition that they would have experienced for 400 years. Right. This right. Big parties verging on orgies, uh, big festivals to the deities where you'd have these, you know, large molten images. That was what religion looked like. So up on the mountain, Moses is uh, being taught a, a way of worshiping and being that is radically new. And at the foot of the mountain, the people are just doing what they're used to. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that's how uh, Maimonides explains all of animal sacrifice, uh, the, sort of the, the temple cult. But fundamentally, this is just a pathway away from uh, Egyptian pagan idol worship. Interesting. Well, and, and definitely a pathway away from uh, human sacrifice. <laughs> yes, so, exactly. Right. So there are incremental changes uh, going on in the way people approach God. Yes. Um, but we, we see them incremental from our point of view. Uh, but at the time, this must have seemed entirely radical. Like, uh, you know, what Moses is learning up on the mountain for the people down at the foot of the mountain is probably going to sound just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, we are about to get to, to the grand argument between God and Moses. And this is really important. Um, listeners who are paying attention will see this as a trope in some ways. This is the same kind of argument that Abraham has with God at the Oaks of Mamre. Um, and you know, for me, it's, it's incredibly interesting because I, 
don't really hold to the Western notion of God as being omnipotent, mm. omnipresent, omniscient, um, because that God can't be argued with or talked into changing um, ideas or, or mind. And I don't know if that God is biblical, because here in the Bible, we have a God who can certainly be talked into a change of mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how the rabbis are going to imagine this, actually. The rabbis are going to see this as God's act of contrition. Yeah, that, right. Which is even more radical to say, not only a God who can who can change uh, a mindset, but also a God who will feel guilty. So let's, let's read this <laughs> Torah. Let's yeah. read the verses, and then uh, we can jump in with some of these uh, commentaries. Yeah, the Lord further said to Moses, "I see that this is a stiff-necked people. Now let me be that my anger might blaze forth against them, that I might destroy them and make of you a great nation." Right. This is, uh, um, I had a teacher who liked to say that, uh, the garden of Eden was sort of attempt number one at perfection yeah. and God, you know, uh -huh. eventually wipes all of this out and starts again with Noah, which is attempt number two, uh, to create the perfect world that the third model is, uh, okay, I'm not going to reboot the whole world. Instead, I'm going to work directly with a family, right? And that's right. God's relationship with, Mo uh, uh, Abraham and eventually Moses, uh, yeah. And that this is potential version number four. God's going to reboot right. it all starting just with Moses. Right. Which would still be the family model of getting things right. Yes. Just Moses and not Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that fits more with the traditional Christian salvation history than it does with the human beings are created in order to help God with creation idea that we've been playing around with. Uh, you know, Christian salvation history says that God created the world perfect and then we fell and then God made all these attempts to get us back to perfection, all these different models of action. Um, if we were just created to help God create, why is this necessary? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, want it, you to answer because I like the idea that we were created to help God create. I prefer it. So you know, help me out, Rabbi. The, the Jewish answer to that question, or the, or sort of the, the most contemporary Jewish answer, is that in an imperfect world, nothing can be perfect. Hmm. Uh, and so, it doesn't matter how perfectly developed we are as people. We are in a uh, imperfect yet to be completed, yet to be redeemed, whatever language you like there, uh, world. And as such, perfection is impossible. And so instead, all that we can ask is a constant process of introspection, looking at the ways that we have been imperfect and correcting. Uh, it, it's basically a recognition that while we're in this imperfect world, our morality and ethics also have to be imperfect or, or have to be uh, relative. One might, it might be a better way of saying it. All right. So we could read this maybe as God is in an act of creation has created human beings to help with that creation. Human beings keep resisting their role. So God keeps thinking, maybe I should just recreate human beings, you know, or start all over again so I can get some decent helpers. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So we, we've actually we've got a great midrash 
uh, that deals yeah. exactly with this. Uh, okay. This is a Babylonian Talmud? Uh, no. Um, Midrash Rabbah is where I'm pulling it from. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, the Midrash says it can be compared to a king who had an uncultivated field and who said to a tenant laborer, go and improve it and turn it into a vineyard. Uh, the laborer went and tended the field, turned it into a vineyard. The wine or the, the vines grew and produced wine. However, it was sour wine. The king tastes it and he says, tear it all up, destroy the vineyard. Uh, what do I want with uh, uh, vines that produce nothing but vinegar? Uh, and so this tenant farmer comes to him and said, my Lord, my King, consider what sums you've invested in this vineyard since it's been planted. Now you want to cut it all down. Do not give me the reply, but it's wines become sour. You know that it is the newness of the vineyard that every fresh, freshly planted vineyard produces sour wine. Uh, and so that, that is sort of a midrashic reading of what Moses is doing. That Moses is making the argument to God that, you know, that this is expected. This is a part of the process. You can't, uh, you can't have perfection in that you can't just decide to start over again every time something messes up a little. Right. Which is actually a really brutal argument against God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that's like you made fun. it, you got to live with it. Yeah. Man. You, you broke it, you, <laughs> you buy it. <laughs> Uh, not that God broke it, but at any rate, you know. What yep. I'm yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're going to get a lot of arguments. So let's continue with the Torah for, for a moment in order to get there. So let's take it from 11. But Moses implored the Lord as God saying, let me not, let not your anger, O Lord, blaze forth against your people whom you have delivered from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that God delivered them only to kill them off in the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. Turn from your blazing anger and renounce the plan to punish your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, how you swore to them by yourself and said to them, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your offspring this whole land with which I spoke to possess forever. And the Lord renounced the punishment uh, that God had planned to bring upon God's people. Okay, so... When I hear that, I hear Moses making this argument that it's meant to appeal to God's pride, right? You know, like the whole reason you fought all these battles with Pharaoh and defeated Pharaoh was so that people could see your might and how great you are. And if you destroy the people now, uh, you will lose the benefit of all of that um, credit, you know, divine social credit. Uh, but not a single one of the rabbis who you, who you've pulled midrash from, uh, bring that up. So maybe that's not important at all, uh, in Judaism. You know, it doesn't become a theme here. I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, if you think of the same idea a little differently, that, that fundamentally Jews have long understood that our purpose is to be, a light onto the nations that we're supposed to be an example for other people to follow. Uh, whether or not we have been is a different question. Um, but that's, that sort of is, is the self understanding here. Uh, and so what you get here then, if you, if you think of that idea is Moses arguing with God and saying, God, you got to see this thing through. 
Uh, right. And, and so in that way, it becomes not about God's uh, vanity or pride, but instead about God's plan. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Moses saying, God, stop being so tactical, be a little strategic. Got it. Got it. Okay. So think about, think about the long term. Uh, don't, don't be swayed by your anger. In yes. Show. Yes. I know he went over five okay. yesterday, but you know, he hit three thirty last season. Let him keep playing. Okay. <laughs> so maybe this is a discussion on the pitchers. Mike. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay. Uh, but let's look at some of the, some of the many midrash that all revolve around verse 11 in particular. So we have Midrash Rabbo. When Israel committed that act, Moses arose to appease God and said, Master of the universe, they have given you an assistant and you are annoyed with them? Why? This calf which they have made will be your assistant. You will cause the sun to rise. Well, it, the calf, will cause the moon to rise. You will look after the stars and it will see to the constellations. You will cause the dew to descend, and it will cause the winds to blow. You will make the rains come down. Well, it will be responsible for the growth this, of plants. You know, it's a good argument. Like, I, I could use someone to do these things. Right, right. So, basically, we've been talking about human beings being the helper of God, but Moses is saying, hey, look, they made you a calf to also help. This is like it's a little robotic helper. That. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, said God to him, Moses, you err as they do, for there is nothing real in it. Right, I love this. God looks over at Moses and says, Moses, really, after all this time, you still believe that this thing does something? That this statue is something? Yeah. Right. So, punchline, said Moses, if this is the case, that is, if there's nothing real in it, why should your wrath burn against your people? So, this is all just Moses getting God to admit that the calf has no reality and doesn't really matter at all so that then he could be like if it doesn't matter why are you angry <laughs> yes yes this is this is moses the uh uh psychotherapist here or the spouse i mean <laughs> you know this is the kind of argument that would win us yeah that's argument. true too that's true yeah uh, and, and wasn't, you were telling me a story about Abraham that follows along exactly. Yeah. The same. There's a great midrash about Abraham that actually is in the Quran, the Muslim holy document, uh, just like this, uh, because the Quran's biblical stories are often very midrashic. Uh, and it says that, uh, not Moses, Abraham, uh, Abraham's dad was an idol maker and went out one day and left Abraham in charge of the shop and. Abraham takes a stick and destroys all the idols except the big one in the corner. He takes the stick and he puts it in that idol's hand and his dad comes home and his dad looks at it and says, Abe, what did you do? And Abe says, it wasn't me. See, look at him over there, stick in hand. And his dad looks at him and says, Abe, come on, you think I'm a fool? This thing is just a statue. And Abe looks back at him and says, ha ha. If it's just a statue, what does it matter that I destroy yes. them all? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Got to make a living yeah. here, Abe. Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah, what happens to his dad after that? That's a good question. Um, okay, well, obviously his dad does not survive forever to hang out with uh, Aaron because he would have made the calf much quicker. Otherwise, um, we'd have him on okay, the podcast so- next week. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so this is a clever argument. Uh, you know, God, why are you getting angry about this calf when you yourself say these things don't matter? Um, are there other clever arguments Moses 
that the rabbis have Moses bring in when they write their midrash? Uh, so I like this next one. Uh, if you look at verse 11, it says, why, O oh God, should your wrath burn against your people when you brought them out of the land of Egypt? So the rabbis ask the question of why is Egypt being mentioned here? And it says, Rabbi Huna, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, it can be compared to a wise man who opened a perfume shop for his son in a street frequented by harlots. The street did its work, the business did its share, and the son's youth, and the son's youth likewise contributed its part, uh, with the result that the son fell into evil ways. When the father came and caught him among the harlots, he began to shout and said, I will kill you. But his friend was there, and he said, You were the cause of his corruption. And you shouted him, you set aside all other professions, you taught him only to be a perfumer, you skipped over all the other districts, and you opened a shop for him just in the street where harlots dwell. This is what Moses said. Master of the universe, you passed over the entire world to have your children be enslaved in Egypt, where all they worship are lambs. Bear this in mind, where they came from matters. Yeah, so... I think this is a mixed bag about how powerful God is in scripture, right? So, uh, because here it's saying really that God chose Egypt. This was all part of some kind of divine plan. Yes. I, I think we just have not made up our minds about whether there's a divine plan or whether there isn't and what we think about that and how we live in relationship to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, I think we've talked about it before. This is that famous story of the, uh, the, the I guess they weren't survivors at this point, the people, uh, Jews in the Holocaust at one of the camps who hold, put God on trial, finish the trial, decide that God is guilty, and they go and they pray the afternoon service. Yeah. <laughs> now that's right? I mean, amazing. sometimes it's not about what you believe. It's just about going and doing it. Right. Right. Huh. Um, because practices are, um, they make community. Um, and, and that maybe in the end is the truth. Yeah. Well, actually we, right. We've got a midrash about this too, uh, from earlier on, uh, when they give their golden earrings said Rabbi Abba Baracha, there's no understanding the character of this people. They're solicited for the golden calf and they give, they're solicited for the sanctuary and they give. Um, Right. <laughs> right. I mean, we were talking about this before uh, we started recording, but, you know, I sometimes think that so many of the really fundamental theological disagreements and arguments that we end up having that cause us to be a part of one group and not the other when we're clergy, at least, or, you know, that feels so big and so important. The reality is people don't care. The lay people. Right. Right. Um, yeah, they just they just want to be able to go to the potluck and see the people they like and have a nice Yeah, community. and maybe that's a reminder for the clergy too. Yeah. Yeah, that we should relax. Chill out, exactly. Relax. <laughs> uh okay, any others? Any other midrash we want to go into? Uh um, These were my favorites so far. I've got a big one at the end, but uh, it's not till uh, uh verse 19. Okay, so let's go on from verse 15. And Moses turned and came down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, written on both their sides, on the one side and the on the other they were written. I, I just can only think of Mel Brooks with the 15 tablets coming, 15 commandments. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, the tablets, God's doing they were, and the writing, God's writing it was, inscribed on the tablets. And Joshua heard the sound of the people as it shouted, and he said to Moses, A sound of war in the camp! And he said, Not the sound of crying out in triumph, and not the sound of crying out in defeat, a sound of crying out, I hear. And it happened when he drew near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' wrath flared, and he flooded the tablets from his hand and smashed them at the bottom of the so mountain. I, okay. I think we miss how radical this is. I think we get so yeah. used to this being a part of the story. We know it's going to happen. It is, in some ways, the climax of the story that we stop realizing just how crazy this is. Um, so in a Jewish context, I always compare it to um, – so the, the Torah, the five books of Moses, we have these copies of them that have to be handwritten. They take a trained scribe about a year to make. Uh, if you're going to uh, buy one, almost no one has their own. You know, the synagogue has them. Uh, they cost, you know, about the same as a midsize sedan. Because uh, it's a yeah. person's labor for an entire year, right? They've got to live. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. And so I always compare this, you know, this is taken so seriously that if a Torah accidentally falls and touches the ground, the community that's there has to split up a 40 day fast. Uh, right. It's a, it's a, it's a big thing and they have to be treated with this respect. So I always compare this to, uh, if the rabbi on Yom Kippur, the holiest of Jewish days looks out and sees that everyone there is not paying enough attention and she, or he takes the Torah from the ark and destroys it on the middle of the bima, uh, the stage, like people would get how that's the most radical thing that they can imagine. But, this is so much further than this, right? We were just told that this was written literally with God's own finger and Moses destroys right. it. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, he is pissed. Um, and it's weird that he's just been arguing with God to protect the people and he knows what the people are doing, but when he sees it, he loses his temper. I get that. Temper. Yeah, so when when something that's just theoretical becomes reality, yes, differently. Yes, certainly. Okay. Um, but there is a midrash about why he, he destroys these tablets, and that is that because the people don't know yet that what they're doing is wrong and that the punishment for doing it is death, Moses is like, to save them, I will throw down these, these tablets and destroy them. Uh, so that they won't exactly, die, you know, the, right? the text itself, the, the biblical text, this is, uh, what I like to think of as second degree tablet destruction, right? It's not pre, it's not premeditated. Uh-huh. Uh, Moses is, it's a moment <laughs> yep. of passion and destroys him. Uh, but the Midrash turns it into first degree tablet destruction that Moses actually stops and he thinks about this. And what he realizes is that he's, by giving them these laws, he's committing them to immediately being violators of these laws. And so he destroys the tablets. And really what's so radical about this Midrash is not the rereading of Moses, but that it says that this was one of the things that Moses did. We're told there were three of them uh, that Moses did on his own. But after the fact, it turns out that this coincided with God's judgment. Right. So Moses destroys these tablets in order to protect the people. And God agrees that ultimately religion and faith and theology and all of these constructs have to serve the people and not the other way around. Right. Um, right. 
It's pretty amazing to think about. I, you um, know, I think about this midrash a lot. Uh, one of the one of the issues in the Jewish world today is the question of interfaith families. Seventy percent of all Jews who got married in the last few years married non-Jews. Uh, and for a long time, institutionally, there was a ton of pushback, thinking that if rabbis don't officiate and so on and so forth, that people just will uh, only marry other Jews. Uh, uh-huh. And to me, this is long. This midrash has been one of the understandings that that led me to saying I, I'm going to officiate at interfaith weddings, which is that ultimately Torah has to serve the people. That ultimately this has to be about the couple and serving them, and not about an ideology that I'm bringing to the table. Right, right. So you set yourself aside in order to be a witness to love, really. Yeah. And it's a reminder that some of the ritual things that we hold up, symbolic things that we hold up as being important ultimately are not as important as human life and dignity and love and respect. Uh, All right. Let's move on because we are not even halfway done with this chapter. So we got to, we got to make speed here. Okay, and it happened that Moses drew near the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing, and his wrath flared, and he flung the tablets from his hand and smashed them at the bottom of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it in fire and ground it fine and scattered it over the water and made the Israelites... Yeah, that's a pretty brutal punishment here. This is... It's like having your kids have to smoke the whole pack. That's exactly what this is. Yes, I was trying to figure out, like, it felt <laughs> like a friend's dad kind of punishment. Yep. Yeah, it sure does. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you should have brought upon it great offense? And Aaron said, not let my Lord's wrath flare. You yourself know that this people is an evil way. And they said to me, make us gods. That will go before us. For this man Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. And I said to them, "Whoever is gold, take it off." And they gave it to me, and I flung it. So he's, he's telling a pretty good story here. Yeah, you know, there's something. It's very passive. It's like I didn't make the calf. You know, there was a fire. They threw their stuff, and yeah. the calf just emerged. I, yeah, I mom, there, there, unbelievable. there was a party that was thrown here. <laughs> Wow, that chandelier was broken, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm not, yeah, exactly. I had nothing to do with that. All of your alcohol was drunken, wasn't it? I don't, you know. <laughs> uh, okay. And Moses saw the people that it was let loose, for Aaron had let them loose as a shameful thing to their adversaries. And Moses stood at the gate of the camp. And now here we get to the really troubling part. The morally troubling part. Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord to me. And the Levites, note the priests, gather around him. And he said to them, Thus said the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword in his thigh and cross over and back from gate to gate in the camp. And each man kill his brother and each man his fellow and each man his kin. So what we have here is a gruesome purging of the Israelites. Yeah, brutal. I, I always manage to forget about this section right here. Uh, right, they go through and they kill thousands. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, my friend Jared, uh, shout out to you, Jared, asked this question of me. Actually, he asked this question of Terrence Stratton, but Terrence didn't really have a good answer. But he asked, you know, what what do we make of the fact that it's the religious authorities doing this? I mean, that to me is like one of the most troubling things. You and I have just been saying that the religious community is there to serve the people, and yet here we have the leaders of that community quite willing to to murder uh, if people are not doing it right religiously. What do we make of that, Daniel? Yeah, right. It's not an accident that I forget this. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think the least we have to make of this is that a remind, this is a reminder that this is a part of all of our religious traditions too. Right. Um, In the name of our religious tradition. Um, Right. It's a lot easier to remember the other people, right? What the Romans did to the Christians or what the Christians did to the Jews or what the, right. Um, But this is a part of all of our traditions. Okay. So there is no way really to make this better. (laughs) No matter how you slice it, this is yeah. Horrible and gross. Yeah, right. I mean, there's all sorts of apologetics we can throw at this about why it was right or so on and so forth. But I, I don't know. It feels gross to put any apologetics to this. Yeah. Okay. So, so we won't try. We'll say, uh, geez, I don't know. Like, it's this kind of story that brings our whole project into doubt at certain moments. You know, we'll be going along, you and I, having a nice discussion about religious community and the nature of God. And then we just get, yeah, but you know, I think that's why it needs to be in here. And it's why we need to keep reading it because I think it's important that we have some doubt in what we're doing and some doubt in religion and some doubt in the great project of religion that both of us uh, have committed our professions and our lives to Uh, that it can and does go down this other path also. So built into the scripture here is a critique um, or a reminder that this isn't all. Yeah. Be yeah. I mean, I, you know, light. I certainly know I struggle with this, but there are moments where I find myself thinking, am I really making the world better in any way by doing what I'm doing right now? Right. It is, should I really be spending my life as a religious leader or should I be doing just pure justice work? Uh, and I don't know. I, I tend to think that having that doubt in that reminder of the failure of religion, right? If the great premise of religion is that it can make you a good person, the great failure is that it doesn't seem to make you good people. Yeah. There's no guarantee that being religious will make you good. No, there's no guarantee. There doesn't even seem to be much of a correlation. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, And yet we keep asking these questions. I mean, I guess, you know, when I think about my, my life and my career, it's basically, I just can't stop being deeply engaged in the story and, and asking deeply religious questions or questions of religion I, I don't know why that is, but I know, you know, that kind of critical, inquisitive part of me would not be satisfied, like, teaching English or something, even though I love poetry, right? Like, the, it's a different kind of question. Totally. 
ultimate kind of question being asked here, and I can't stop asking it. So, okay, well, we we need to finish this chapter before our listeners, uh, you know, decide that they would like to uh, send Levites yes, after they, us. They can stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's true. Uh, so, and the Levites said, according to the word of Moses, and about three thousand men of the people fell on that day. And Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for each man is against his son and against his brother, and so blessing may be given to you today. And it happened on the next day that Moses said to the people, You, you have committed a great offense, and now I shall go up to the Lord. Perhaps I may atone for your offense. And Moses went back to the Lord and said, I beg you, this people has committed a great offense. They have made themselves gods of gold, and now if you would hear their offense... And if not, wipe me out, pray, from your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, He who has offended against me, I shall wipe him out from my book, and now lead this people to where I have spoken to you. Look, my messenger shall go before you, and on the day I make a reckoning, I will make a reckoning with them for their offense. And the Lord scourged the people for having made the calf that Aaron made. Uh, okay, so that is the end of the chapter, Daniel. Uh, we made it through. We made it through. On the other side of the golden calf. Yes. Uh, all right, dear listeners. So for for weeks and weeks, I've been saying, just wait till we get to the golden calf. And now we've gotten there and have made it through that this chapter. And I'm sure you're feeling a little bit of a letdown. All of your anticipation. And yes. this is what we did with it. Oh, well. Uh, you know, I, I like to think that our listeners are used to disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they are. Uh, okay, Daniel, uh, before we finish, do you have anything you want to plug? I have no plugs. Okay, I will plug, the, again, the fact that I have an art opening two weekends from now at St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Columbus on May 19th. Uh, and you, dear listeners, have been listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and rabbi explore Exodus, which is brought to you by the kind help of Christchurch Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, have a really good week.